All right, testing, testing, testing. Figured it out. Everything. Black Matter Podcast. Here we go. Because of COVID-19 and just all the 
transitions that 2020 has been. The film and the idea of the film, it changed a lot from originally what I wanted to do. Um, so, because I'm, I'm pretty sure you've never listened to an episode of the podcast, right? No, I haven't. I, haven't. <laughs> I assume that, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> the Black Matter podcast is just, it's, it's, it's a social platform. I think it's, um, it's really a love letter to black folks, black queer folks, uh, black femmes in Richmond and beyond. Um, and it's really just a social platform to center things that are, you know, everything black dimensionality. Um, and black dimensionality is just a term that I use in my uh, theoretical work, which is really just about thinking about diversity um, from a place of black identity and having these conversations about nuance, uh, cultural production, um, and looking at black life as fine art, which I think, black, I think you know, our lives are, are forms of fine art. And the ways that we live our everyday lives, we create culture, we create knowledge. And so this podcast has been, um, it's been a joy. It has been a way for me to like center black joy in my life through my ragged media making. <laughs> but um, it's like, it's weird. It's like I'm giving a shout out to my own show, but for real, like, everybody that's been on the podcast really has inspired me. I think where this is probably going to be like episode 12. And um, everyone that's been on the podcast really has inspired uh, a part of the of the making of Everyday Black Matter. So, um, and that includes you because you and I, uh, for folks listening, we've actually never met in person, even though we work together on a 22 minute film. Um, but we've never met, so it's our first time meeting. If I knew how to press the applause button, I would. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, um, I'm pretty sure I do want to do it. But anyways, I'm glad to have you on the show. So I do want to hear like a little bit of background about you, because um, I do think it's crazy that um, we've never met and the work just kind of synced together. Um, yeah. I, th- I think it did in terms of your, your, what you added to the film. So just tell me about your process for making music, who you are, and we can start there. Yeah, sure. My name is Johannes Barfield. Um, I usually don't go by Barfield, honestly. Uh, just formalities, um, but yeah, so I'm from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Um, I was born and raised there, essentially, um, and over the past, let's say, what, like maybe like four years or so, you know, um, I've been just traveling from place to place, um, doing some art stuff, so like in 2018, I, I graduated um, from VCU and VCU Arts, I got my master's degree um, in photography and film. Um, though I'm not, I would, I would not say I'm a photographer. And I think we were just talking about this earlier, like how black people, you know, like are inherently like multifaceted. Mm-hmm. Um, so like multidimensional, yeah, multifaceted, yeah. interdisciplinary. Yeah, definitely. All these words that the White Academy thinks that they created is like, nah, nigga, we've been running barbershops and selling DVDs at the same time forever. It's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> just a part of part of the game. Essentially, uh, I've been around in Richmond um, since 2016, um, but I graduated in 2018, and I haven't really been back since. And now I've returned back, and now I'm I'm teaching um, at the university um, in the photography department. And it's it's been interesting. Um, My musical background, um, I I probably started working on music... um, I won't even say seriously. It's, it was more like it's always been a fun thing, um, probably since high school. So we're talking like we're talking years, you know, a while ago. Um, mm. So since high school, when, when you know tinkering around with music, the idea of music, I've always been a fan of like um, 
specifically my father's record collection when I was, you know, I was a kid. So we're talking about like, you know, 70s music, nice. uh, like soul and R&B and jazz. Um, and then, you know, there are other, you know, genres and stuff that I, you know, I, I kind of I tapped into, explored. But I think those are the ones that are at the core and like what I return back to. So, um, And I want to say like, you know, I'm going to give you your flowers before we even get started with the episode that like your music is amazing. Um, your music is dope. And, Thank like, you. I mean, I know musicians, but I don't. I haven't worked like very closely with a musician, and like I don't know your process. But like I know when I listened to a lot of your stuff, it was like it was it kept like kind of ringing in my mind. What was like, I guess what was the most surprising was like the music that we use in the Everyday Black Matter film you made like before, you know, before the film was even a thing. And I don't know if it was for other projects or it was just like you, you know, geeking around and making some beats, but like. When I watch the film and I listen to the the music, like it, it it feels like you made the music for that particular film. Yeah, that's amazing. You which was like incredible, and I think it also just speaks to what we were talking about before we hit record about how like black folks just have this inherent kind of collaborative connection. We're always speaking to each other uh, before we even meet. Like we just don't really know a stranger in a way. Because yeah, yeah. um, when I heard some of your stuff, especially the Queen and Slim beat, um, which I danced to at the end of the film. I was like, that is the song for my dance scene in this film. And I just feel like it, there's just so much going on in that yeah. film. And like for the 10 minutes that you know me, like that is how I operate. Like there's just always so much going on in my brain. I always am thinking about 10,000 things at once. Um, I credit that to ADHD, but also like it's just a part of my art, my yeah. art process. So I have a question. So I did a project where um, on Instagram, essentially just playing around and I would use um, films that I liked and I would put music to them. Mm-hmm. I just take a, a scene that I wouldn't I wouldn't edit it. I just took a you know a scene, maybe like a minute clip and put uh, some music. I actually built the music around that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so like uh, so Chaz caught that um, and I'm wondering uh, you know my question is did the actual scene have an influence on like the way you perceive the, the music that you heard? For the Queen and Slim yeah, song? Yeah, specifically. Um, yeah, because that scene was about um, kind of using my body as a portal to show, like, the connectivity between all the uh, the characters in the film mm. and really thinking about how black matter uh, is never singular. And so even though we have different representations of black identity in the film, as a black uh, man, as a black queer man, um, I felt like connected to like a lot of the different nuances and different identities that people were showing. So me dancing in the film was kind of like bringing it all uh, together. And also it was like me kind of using my body to just like celebrate like what you had just seen, right? You had just seen um, a, a vibe of just like black joy as practice, um, reparations, uninhibited identity. Um, and also there was just so much um, richness in everybody's like everyday black life a lot of the folks in the film are friends of mine people some of them are folks i don't know but like majority of the people in the film are people that we kind of just pulled up on and asked if we could record them like in their store record them doing whatever they were doing um like dot just you know her and her wife at outside their their um, barbershop that they own like so the the end dance scene was this kind of celebration of all of that but then also the Queen and Slim song because it had so much going on and it couldn't really be contained to like a genre. Yeah. Uh, it couldn't be like you know a particular sound. It just it has a lot going on in that beat. Um, it, I really connected to that personally, and I felt I just felt like a joyful vibe 
in that. And even though the ending scene is also about like rage, like the the quote that we end with, um, and I'm dancing in this parking lot that is under the pay here sign, so it was about reminding you about reparations. There's still like with the lights, with the illuminated pay here sign, there was still this like vibe of like uh, joy in there too. Yeah, definitely. The other music that you chose um, was made over a course of uh, maybe um, maybe five to ten years. The so, whole, all the music. Yeah, I mean the the so essentially like that that pack of music that I I sent you um, was yeah. So that was like stuff that was made probably from like. You know, and it, I can't remember exactly the dates of it, but it ranges probably from like five to ten years. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was music that I made specifically for myself. So you were in like very different places when you made each song. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like, um, I would have to. I was imagine that maybe some of it was made um, in Virginia, mm-hmm. actually, um, mm-hmm. but not in Richmond though. Um, when I was, I was also here in Danville, uh-huh. uh, Virginia, um, pursuing a, a film degree actually. Um, okay. So yeah, that was. Yeah, that was a while ago. So you're looking out like that was a different Johannes. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's different. You know, it's I think um, access mm-hmm. um, played a, a big part in like you know my my journey. Um, so like growing up in a small town, um, nobody does does um, you know art professionally. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have like a mentor. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an art teacher that I did like a lot, you know, in my high school, mm-hmm. um, but he had, you know, he didn't really give me too much direction as far as that mm-hmm. goes. Um, so there was just a lot of a lot of gap that happened, and so there was a lot of time of, of being lost, mm-hmm. you know, and like just kind of like trying to figure out how to um, how to not really how to be creative, mm-hmm. but like how to channel it and be able to like you know use it as a vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah, that was a it was a long journey of trying to of figuring it out. Even now, you know, it's still like a you know still like a thing, you know. But I think I have a little, you know, you know, a better way of understanding how to operate it now. And you're hella talented, so I mean, wherever you're going with your artwork, I like totally think that. Yeah, thank you. You're getting shout out to to Sandy. Sandy is um, another artist in Richmond who introduced me to you. Yeah, uh, Virtually, and you know, also spoke volumes about your work. And then when you sent me the mixtape, which I appreciate because you were like. You know, you didn't know me, um, and you probably, from seeing how I operate media stuff, you're probably like, I don't know what the fuck this film is about. <laughs> <laughs> so I really appreciate that you were trusting, you were generous, um, you were open-minded, um, and it was just like, it was so dope that you had sent the mixtape because it gave us, it gave me time to just like listen to it on my own yeah. and have it, in, have it in, put on some headphones and just like process it, and that was how I got to know like, Queen and Slim is definitely that song that, that closes out the film. Um, I'm gonna. I'm not sure on all the song titles, but like the opening song, like that really gave us that vibe of like uh, kind of the deception that we were playing around with, but also like con artistry, which is a term I'll talk about later that we that we enacted a lot for this film. Um, the the music just throughout the film, like it totally fit. And then a lot of folks, you know, got emotional with like the Michaela scene at the monument, and I think like even that beat as well. It helps slow down the roller coaster that is the film, and that was like the metaphor that I was really going for. I wanted Everyday Black Matter to be just like this roller coaster, but like any roller coaster, it's all still on one track. And I think Black Life, you know, from speaking from my perspective, like is a roller coaster. It has always been for me. This episode is a roller coaster like how we started out. Yeah, it but it like, you know, it has ups and downs, but it's it's all on the same track. And like that was why I had kind of danced uh, throughout some several of the scenes to kind of use my body to keep 
everybody kind of con connected in a way. Um, because even though you have Aurora in the film and you have um, Aurora talking about like sex work and being very open with their sexuality because of the ways that black trans folks have been repressed, you also had uh, you know Mr. Samples who sings after Aurora, who is just like this you know joyful older black man that's just like singing as the buses go by and it's like he's he's embracing um, just his beautiful voice, but also it's like he's just he just has this like spirit to him. Um, that like I wanted to find a way to connect both of those scenes. So kudos to you. The the music was dope. I'm glad that it all like worked out. So, my, so I, uh, I posed uh, some ideas about um, funding and projects being getting, well, specifically black projects being uh, getting cut, mm -hmm. you know, due to uh, COVID. Um, so you had, essentially you had like a, a project that was rolling, right? And then COVID happened and then they were like, let's cut it. Mm -hmm. um, and so your project was up for the cut first, you know? So this so. film technically was not going to happen once COVID hit because the museum had decided that, like, uh, they just weren't going to be able to swing it. Yeah, and then you suggested that that may not uh, be a reality because if if there were black people on the board. Yeah. And then I was like, you know, maybe I'm, I'm wondering in practice, is that a reality? Like, so if there are black people on the board, um, would they be, is it going to be one? Is it going to be, is it going to be a token thing? Mm -hmm. Or, you know... Um, are they going to feel pressure mm -hmm. of the others mm -hmm. um, to, we're talking about like assimilation, conformity, mm -hmm. like, so mm -hmm. like, I'm just curious, like how many black people would it take on the board for those things to not be cut? Um, I mean, I think you're bringing up a really nuanced question. Yeah, yeah. So I like that you're on that, on Black Matter, ready to get into it. <laughs> <laughs> These are questions that don't have one answer. Um, and so I'll, I'll give a two-pronged answer as academics love to do. I think that in these white institutions like the Valentine, the ICA, et cetera, um, the answer to solving the racism that happens within their doors and the gatekeeping that happens within their doors is not just hiring black people in leadership positions or putting black people on boards. Because we know that when you hire you know, the token diversity or you hire you know, the black woman because Black Lives Matter is trending, um, you're asking oft often, not all the time, because it's not a monolithic experience, but you're often asking us um, to come into violent environments. Mm. And I think sometimes when we allow these institutions to pat themselves on the back for giving us $2.12 to make a $30,000 film or hiring a black woman to run diversity and inclusion, um, when we allow them to pat themselves on the back for doing that, we sometimes turn a blind eye to the, how difficult it is and how lonely it is to work in those environments or how pressuring it is to be the only black person on a board at a white museum and then when the black exhibition is like, you know, being misspoken about or not um, being advocated for or, or the first thing to go on the chopping board, she or they feels, um, you know, kind of pushed to, to speak up for it. And I always tell people, white folks in particular, that, that identify as allies, um, we can talk about that as well, I always tell folks, like, I want you to be an ally or a comrade to me when I'm not in the room. 
don't have me um, be advocating for myself in the boardroom. And then when we were sitting next to each other at the bathroom sink, you're like, oh, I, I, I really liked what you said. Well, then why didn't you <laughs> yeah, stand yeah. up for me when we were in the room? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think you're asking me a really complicated question. Um, and I think in this instance, like, yeah, when uh, this project was kind of on the chopping board because of COVID and because the museum just, you know, didn't know the value of it and didn't understand how it could still work. As black people, we, we are always able to make maneuvers. We're always able to make something out of nothing. We made a dope-ass film with a very small budget. Like, you know, if, if we have the chance to um, maneuver and shift our work like we, had, like we did for this project, we can always, you know, do dope stuff. I think sometimes the museums are conditioned to think very rigidly and like if it can't um, happen this way, then like it can't happen at all. So I do think that like, yes, for the Valentine, it would be great to have more black staff here. It'd be great to have more representation so that when these kinds of conversations come up, it's not just the artists having to now turn into advocate for their exhibition, yeah. right? Um, so I think with more representation comes more responsibility, and it's not the, the way to solve all the problems. But I do think that like um, it is important for us to be represented on boards and in you know executive positions and stuff so that like these types of conversations, like what you're bringing up, can happen you know, in these higher level rooms, but at the same time that should come with like culture shift. Um, you know, I, I am the first person to say like, I, you know, I, I love working in academia because I, I, I believe in the power of education, but my blackness allows me to recognize that um, education that is the most dope or education that's the most creative or education that's the most spiritual, it does not fucking happen within the walls of the university. And so I'm all about using the university resources to, you know, bring their eyes or their gaze into the communities that, like, are the true scholars, where, like, the really dope knowledge stuff happens. What do you think about Griot? Griot? Yeah. So, like, um, we're talking about, like, uh, orators, talking about, like, music, um stories mm-hmm. um, that usually we're talking about like um, things of African descent yes um, and we're thinking about essentially storytelling to, with music um, that has no no linear like you know it's very interdisciplinary yeah mm-hmm. I think I, I know of this I think I just don't use yeah. the term so I just I'm you know I was just asking because I was like you know maybe I've seen uh I've seen some attempts um, at like trying to create them um, but I don't know if anyone has really like been that successful you know successful and I think it's something that I'm entertaining and I'm thinking about like you know creating some sort of like stories without it having like a, a A to B narrative you know so yeah I mean I feel like we can get into that for like unpacking the film because I was really trying to show like story as theory right yeah. story as knowledge production um, which is why I, I like working with, you know, musicians, artists, um, or just what I would call black academics, right? Like folks who are really using, whether it's the keyboard or the podcast, the paintbrush, they're using these tools as apparatuses to just show, like, the knowledge that comes from, like, everyday black life. What I'm saying, I feel like you're... you're work is, is working with is operating within that space when we're talking about like things that are not like linear li- yeah exactly so I feel like that is just how my blackness and my queerness speak to each other and when I say queerness I don't just mean like my sexuality I mean like 
queerness allows me to constantly reimagine and rethink um, and reclaim spaces that like weren't intended for for us for me and like queerness also constantly allows me to see blackness outside of like a linear respectability um, gender binary lens my queerness allows me to make a film like don't touch my hair my queerness allows me to to recognize how my masculinity as a black man really formed um, from black women from black women who were in the beauty salon and beyond black women like my mom and my grandma who were single mothers who always said like i'm the mother and the daddy right <laughs> like the way that they were able to just like gender bend yeah. and my my grandmother i identify my grandma as someone who like is very masculine and feminine because she's very loud and, and aggressive, but she's also like shops at cachet and wears the the sparkly um, tops and like she always just played with um, her identity in ways that was so outward, right? Like she's always the person who's just talking way too loud and like we we say those kind of things are like you know men are more assertive and I'm like no nah, my grandma's assertive as well. I mean not to get too deep, but I think really what I'm really saying is like as a young black like sissy boy, my queerness made me be kind of like a fly on the wall to a lot of black spaces because mm. I wasn't really accepted in the barbershop because I was too, you know, faggotry and I wasn't really accepted in the beauty salon because it's like, this is not a space for little boys, but I was there. So it always allowed me to like look at black spaces from being like this kind of fly on the wall because I was never man enough to be in the barbershop and I was never feminine enough to be in the beauty salon. So I was always operating like in these middle ground spaces yeah, that's interesting you say and that. I think we all have that I just think that when you identify as queer you probably just like embrace it a little bit more because you're pushed to the outskirts but I think everybody all of us have like a nuanced complicated black identity where like you push boundaries like I think your music pushes boundaries your music makes you think about um, like a Frank Ocean kind of vibe don't make your head get too big now Frank Ocean is still <laughs> But a Frank Ocean vibe where, like, yeah. you can't contain it to one genre. You know what I'm saying? Like, you hear it and you're like, it could be this, it could be that, it could be R&B, it could be soul, it could be pop. But that's, like, for me, I'm like, that's black identity, right? Like, it's never a monolith. It's never singular. And that's why the podcast is called Black Matter. And that's why the film's called Everyday Black Matter. Because it's like, you can't watch that film and put it into one category. Like, it's not quite a documentary. And it's not quite, like, a dance piece, Right. Yeah. yeah, it's fluid. It's fluid, yes, yeah. for sure. Yeah. You're hitting all my buzzwords. <laughs> <laughs> like fluid, deception, non-monolithic, um, something that you said about, about like, oh, and you were asking about interdisciplinary. Like, these are the kind of words I like to really think about uh, black identity through. Yeah. But I feel like you're doing that with your music, which is, like, why I wanted to work with you. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, definitely. So, let's take a break, because I'll make sure this recording is working. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely, I'm sure it is. You keep looking at me like, you raggedy ass. <laughs> We're learning as we go. Dr. Aurora. Hello, how are you? 
That was for your dope ass scene in the film. Hey. Um, and the reason why I invited you here, even though this is a teaser, because you have your own mm. black 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 ooh, black lives matter. Yes. Mm-hmm. That. But you have your own black matter episode just for you, right? Yeah. So all me. Hope Johanna doesn't mind sharing the stage a little bit because y'all did literally share the stage because you danced to his music. Um, so I wanted to bring y'all together to just kind of like unpack that a little bit and your experiences both being um, key roles in this film. Like, mm-hmm. nigga couldn't have done the film without either of you. Um, and just your friendship. Yeah. Um, and I hope after today we're friends because I know you just saw me have a whole... Meltdown? Anxiety is real. And so Aurora actually brought some questions for us that will help us get into the conversation of the film. And then I want to ask you to read this excerpt from this book that really inspired uh, the film. Because, you know, we, we got to have a little bit of scholarship. We, we are smart natives on the show, so we gotta have a little bit of, of a citation. A little intelligentsia to balance out the rash. <laughs> yeah. The show is um, critical kikis, and so the critical part is like you know we, we'll have we'll do some black academic stuff. All right. You know the film. We write it through shade, so it's okay. Okay, okay. I was just going to say, oh, I love how they're like, oh, well, now that Black Lives Matter is happening, like, here's half the budget budget. because Black Lives Matter. Because, you know, COVID allows them to say, like, we don't have any money. Right, Um, right, right. But, I mean, it speaks to one of the... One of your scenes that unfortunately didn't make the film mm-hmm. um, because we just didn't have you it. hate me. <laughs> <laughs> but your scene outside, like, what did you say outside? Don't make us. Oh, um, we can do anything with nothing, but don't make us. Mm-hmm. With this film, you know, originally the Valentine, of course, had contacted like Chaz Barracks to do a piece and to do the Don't Touch My Hair exhibition, but like when they commissioned Black Matter as a project, mm-hmm. um, it's interesting that, you know, they didn't realize that, like, Black Matter is never individual. It has to always be singular. Right. And so, to this day, we worked with 41 different uh, Black artists and contributors for this 22-minute film, yeah. which I think is... Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> double applause for that <laughs> film, by the way. Thank you, yes. Out there, so when you, <laughs> <edit>. <laughs> so when you help me with the editing, come on, fade out that applause. Come on, envelope. What's it called? Envelope. Uh, <laughs> I can't remember. But for real, for like, I I was not able. Like, of course, it created a lot more stress than you know would have had to happen. But like, I couldn't have done this film without collaborating and without showing the power of like just collaboration. Yeah. And even though we worked with forty one different folks, and that required way more driving and way more coordination than like I could have handled. Mm-hmm. Um, and cause a lot of anxiety it was such a beautiful thing to me for, to be able to just like call some of my friends mm-hmm. folks like you and just like ask folks to just like kind of pull up and be in this piece and there was no script involved it was like I'm going to support you Chaz and like also like my everyday black life is a form of fine art so just yeah. show up at where I'm where I'm at yeah. and like that was so beautiful now the dream would be that all 41 folks could have been paid what right. they owed could have you know had um, craft services and we could have had all those things that most films have but, you know, we really had to make this film, like, barbecue style. Right. And, no um, sandwich table. No sandwich table. and But it really was, to me, like, um, such a testament to just how I like to work, like, mm-hmm. in collaboration. I mean, with you, Johannes, like, as I was saying earlier in the show, you said that you made the music five to ten years prior to the film. And, like, it's crazy because when I hear the music, I feel like the music was made for this film. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, and I think whatever our spiritual beliefs are like in a way I feel like it it was you know yeah it was to my credit I'm I'm gonna name this myself I'm gonna call myself a futurist yes so 
so within that, I've been working with you know different sounds for a while now that that may seem contemporary, but mm. you know they they weren't necessarily. I, I like this idea of a futurist and chime in Aurora if you if you want. I think that in order to to live you know your everyday black life where you are constantly forcing um, yourself to move from the ways that we're conditioned to just be focused on survival mm-hmm. and move to thriving and move to joy and like creativity and like you have to be a futurist yeah and also like anything because our current like status quo is honestly survival anything any thinking outside of survival anything that delves into the area of thriving is speculative for mm-hmm. me and I love speculation I love um, I think as black people that's all we were given because that was the one thing they couldn't take from us so mm-hmm. growing Our imagination right exactly mm-hmm. and so I love that I love that you're a futurist and I think that we we're all futurists anytime we want better for ourselves because society's not going to give us you know what we deserve so thinking of what we deserve is truly speculation to me dope that actually speaks really like it speaks right into I know I'm about to be like a great teacher but would you read something for us yeah, sure. Maybe I, hopefully I won't uh, butcher it. <laughs> I read uh, Tina Camp's Listening to Images in tandem with making the film, and she does talk a lot about futurism. Yeah. Um, and for me, like, I love that you brought this up, Johannes, because I love the idea about, like, you know, black folks are, black trans folks, black queer folks, black men, like, all of us, like, we're pushed to the margins of a white supremacist society. And I think that that, um, that pushing often allows these systems to forget, as Bell Hooks talks about in one of my favorite articles, I'll cite it in the um, episode link. Bell Hooks has this beautiful article where she talks about the imagination of the marginalized. Mm-hmm. And she talks about like how you know the only person who knows the, the most beautiful um, home design or, or knows what the projects should look like are people that live in the projects. And we often forget that like black folks who are poor, black folks who are trans, black folks who are not able-bodied, um, black men who are incarcerated, like we still have an imagination. Mm-hmm. And if we allowed systems to be redesigned mm-hmm. in a way that centered the imagination of the folks who had been the most brutalized by these mm-hmm. systems, imagine mm-hmm. what we would have. And so even though I never went to film school, I never learned how to make the proper podcast, but I think that's why when you allow black folks to have access to these tools, we create the dopest shit, right? And I think like prior to, um, to going to college, and doing a lot of nonprofit work, I was of that camp of, you know, how white people condition us that, like, all kids in Africa need is just a laptop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's all they need. Yeah. I've learned from, from, I've learned from getting a whole fucking PhD that, like, no, it is not about getting every kid from the hood or every trans girl to go to university mm-hmm. because those places are violent and those mm-hmm. places often are not built for all of us and some of us are good at the code switching and the, mm-hmm. the suppression that you have to do to thrive in those spaces and for some of us it is a level of abuse that we cannot do. Mm-hmm. So I think it's about a few of us, which I call con artistry, um, yep. hashtag my dissertation. <laughs> a few of us, I think, um, can infiltrate these spaces and be con artists and use some con artistry to literally get into a space, get the money to buy podcast equipment and bring it to the kids in the hood who are already experts at making podcasts because they're experts of their own stories, which is why um, in the film I put doctor in front of people's names who quote unquote the academy hasn't deemed yet as mm-hmm. a doctor because I see Aurora as a, as a black trans woman as an expert of her own story. Right. And I think the academy is obsessed <clears throat> with studying 
um, people who live these everyday identities and never paying them or seeing them as the real scholar. So it's a lot of theory and a lot of like talking about racism and talking about black trans life, um, but it's rarely you know honoring uh, the intellectual contributions of the folks who live those lives every day. So I see you as a doctor, regardless of the PhD. Um, I see you as like you know you need to be teaching that Ju- open your own damn Juilliard. You know what I'm saying? Like, and I, I I love to have this conversation with black folks like y'all who are already making these kinds of dope contributions to the world because I'm sure you resonate and understand how like um, oftentimes these systems do not deem us as experts and we um, know a hell of a lot more than the folks who are running said institution. Said institution. Mm. and it really is crazy because to think that like people of color could not like have like produce podcasts or media that's interesting like you can learn how to do the the technical aspects of a podcast in a youtube video but you can't learn personality you know what i'm saying like you can't learn how to be novel in a uh, an austere society that is frankly just boring and Mm -hmm. one-dimensional without us Mm -hmm. so uh, we you, are the culture. We are the culture. And, like, it really is just a matter of, of certain capacity building, mm-hmm. I think, because you give us the technical knowledge. Honey, you can you can even leave oppressive laws in, in place, and we will far outseed, I mean, exceed what our, our expectations. Like, you give us any little bit more power than what we have, we'll take the rest and run with it. So yes. I think that's what they're afraid of. Yes, yeah. So I think because you mentioned futurism, we can't, you know, we can't side our, we can't not have our, yeah. our, our sister scholar in here. Is it this uh, paragraph? The grammar of black feminist futurity that I propose here is its grammar um, of possibility that moves beyond a simple definition of the future tense as what will be in the future. Uh, it moves beyond the future perfect tense um, of which will have happened prior to the reference point in the future. It strives for the tense of possibility that grammarians, I've never seen this word before, refer to as... She's trying to get fu- tenure. What was the cipher through? <laughs> Code switching is the thing we have to do. Sure. That grammarians refer to as future real conditional. Conditional or that which will have had to happen. Uh, The grammar of black feminist futurity is a performance of future that hasn't yet happened, but must. Um, It is an attachment to the belief in which what should be true, which impels us to realize that aspiration. It is the power of, it is a power to imagine beyond current fact and to envision what to envision that which is not but must be. Are you nervous on my raggedy ass show? No. <laughs> yeah. You can boss Chaz around and be like, bitch, show me. Yeah. <laughs> Point to it. <laughs> That's how we really need it. I'm sorry to give you the whole paragraph. <laughs> Did you see it? The grammar? The performance part, right? Yeah, that's right. what your question made me think about. The grammar of black feminist futurity is a performance of a future that hasn't yet happened but must. It's an attachment to be to a belief in which should be true, which impels us to realize that aspiration. Mm-hmm. It is the power to imagine beyond current fact and to envision that which is not but must be. Thank you for reading that. Um, the reason why I brought that in is because you asked this question about futurism, mm-hmm. 
And um, I love what she's saying about it's a performance of a future that like has not yet happened yet, but must be. Mm-hmm. And me, as 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 a black queer uh, artist, as a black queer person living in America, I told you earlier, like my queerness constantly made me like a fly on the wall in black spaces. And so my queerness constantly allowed me to reimagine um, the the capabilities of, of, of what it means to be a black man and, and see my identity um, outside of like the rigid binary structures that we raise black men to be in. Um, and that really speaks a lot to like, not just my work as a scholar that's like always thinking about um, imagining a world that isn't here yet. I think like, for black folks to realize that like our life is not just about work and like hustling and struggling to survive, you have to kind of like lean into like futurism. Yeah. And I love what I love what um, she said in that like it's not the future conditionals, it's more of a future imperative, mm-hmm. you know? It's like it's something that has happened, but it has to happen. Of course the film is a, is a small part of the world, the things that are happening in 2020, but that was why reparations was such a theme in the film. And even though I, I categorize and I write about how the film is a, it's a black joy film, mm-hmm. black joy to me is not just like us getting together as black folks, smiling and kicking and laughing. Black joy is about like inhibition. Mm-hmm. It's about the ability to make work from a place of rage, mm-hmm. which is what I was doing. Like. I'm pissed off and I'm grieving that I finished my PhD in 2020 and had no graduation ceremony, had no no um, walk across the stage, grandma wow. flew in. Like, I'm grieving and I'm upset about that. And the film is about black joy, but I think when we talk about black joy, we also need to hold space for um, allowing us to be, right? Allowing us to be in a space of, of maybe it is rage and allowing us to be in a place of rage and not being labeled as an angry black woman. Mm-hmm. Allowing us allowing me to be as feminine as I want, but not being labeled as a faggot. Like, it's just this um, this plethora of, like, you know, black identity. Um, so, like, that, I thought about the future a lot in making this film because this year, for me, has, like, really made me think about, like, what is the future? Um, and, and what kind of future do I want for my own life? I feel like this is becoming the chat show now, but this oh. year made me really think about what are my dreams outside of labor and what are my dreams that don't involve any motherfucking institution because mm-hmm. all these systems are riddled in white supremacy yeah. um, and this film came from came from at least those thoughts like there are parts of the films that break the rules about what a good film is mm-hmm. like we use certain types of scenes and angles and stuff that you're not supposed to do um, and the film was like kind of intentionally doing that you know what I mean like yeah. I wanted to have um, you know like just to be fully transparent like with your scene yeah we originally were going to have you do a dance scene right. and just be right. dancing. And right. then when I worked with Keys, who's um, our special effects and kind of editing mentor, we had this conversation. We were like, because you, you go right before Mr. Sample, uh-huh. we were like, you cannot have a black trans woman in a film dancing. Like Aurora needs to also have narrative, needs mm-hmm. to tell her own story so that you're not just reiterating, especially because the film is premiering in a black space. Right. Mm-hmm. You cannot just, re- and correct me if I'm wrong, but you cannot just have um, a beautiful black trans woman in the film, you know, doing this dance that you were doing mm-hmm. and allow folks to, to see that and that only be the thing. So it's like, accept right. the black trans woman because she's beautiful. 
and she's sexy. You need to put the narrative and talk about the repression of, of sexuality in black spaces. Yeah. We need to see that coming from you after they just saw this like really sexy scene. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense because one of the main narratives that I have to combat against as a, a black trans woman is that I am not just a fetish, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so I love what you said about that because, you know, if you were to have me in there with, yeah. with no words and it would have been re-perpetuating that narrative that like, all black trans women are good for is is to be sexy and be so sexy that it's like tongue in cheek or it's like it's it's edgy to that I mean we we know that like I'm I literally live a life where when I date I have to ask myself if someone is actually interested in me because I'm getting a whole PhD I'm interesting like you know like I'm an interesting bitch so And I'm sexy and I'm sexual. Like, so I can do all of those, but for you to only see one facet of me is doing me a disservice. So I appreciate you saying that. And I love that the both of you are here because I'm feeling your energy and I don't want to put assumptions on you, but I feel like as a musician, you're probably like, damn, my music is doing all this theoretical shit. (laughs) But it's true. Like at first I heard the song. What was the beat that Aurora danced to? Yeah, I don't, I don't have titles, so. Okay, oh, that's, that's even more theoretical. Wow. Well, that's no, the, not even categorizing and, and name or live. That beat that we use for Aurora's dancing, it fits so well with that kind of like futurist. It was like really kind of like um, night kind of vibey. Like we had the lights yep. as their B-roll. Yeah. Um, and I love at the beginning of your scene, you're like, um, they gave you this much money to make the film. That's all they gave you. And then it goes right into this kind of like um, the music hits. Yeah. Right there. So it was dope.